listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey guys, we have a special guest with us today, Lane Kawaoka. He's a full-time engineer that actually owns 2,100 units worth $255 million. He's also the host of the podcast Simple Passive Cash Flow, and we're super excited to have him on the show today. Lane, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sterling. So, Lane, typically the, the question we first ask our, our guests when they come on is, why should we listen to you? Can you tell us a little bit about what you've accomplished in the, in the investing arena? Currently, I own 3,000 units, financially free, but more importantly, I actually quit my day job earlier this year, so no, no more of uh, screwing around with that anymore, isn't it? <laughs> This nice. stuff actually works, you know. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Took a that's while. The, that's Took the dream. How, how long? How long was that transition from when you got started to when you finally just decided to kick it? To I the bought side? my first rental property in 2009, shortly after graduating college. So it's yeah, it's been about a decade. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Probably could have done a little quicker but maybe we can kind of talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, it it definitely sounds like you have a tremendous amount of success and experience and and we can't wait to dive into that a little further. Can you tell us a little bit about like how you got started, how you initially got interested in real estate and then maybe dive into like that first deal and kind of tell us how that went? Yeah, sure. So I graduated in 2007 with, you know, doing engineering, right? And, you know, my, my background, nobody in my family did real estate or anything like that. They were just hardworking, um, go to college, study hard type of mindset. And then I went and saved my money like a good little kid and I bought a house to live in in a couple of years after graduating. But then I was living there by myself and I was traveling 100% for work. So it didn't really make sense for me to be there since I was only there on Saturday. So I just started to rent it out and... Um, it was a $350,000 class A house in Seattle, Washington. And the rents were $2,200 a month. The mortgage was $1,600. So that was how I got started. You know, that, that was a lot of beer money for a young 20-something-year-old <laughs> kid. And I was like, damn it, I got to keep doing this again and again because this is the way out of this crappy job. Like at the time, I was a construction supervisor. So you know, those civil engineers out there or people in construction know that, you know, it's not the best job. You get paid pretty well, but it's pretty uh, low quality of life for sure. So you just basically, you got interested from, from experience. You just found yourself in a situation where you had a house that, that was available for rent. So you just kind of haphazardly stumbled into it or had you like previously been interested in real estate investing? I mean... I mean, even today, I don't really care for real estate. I mean, but like, there's nothing else that with the tax advantages that you you know the lower level of you know you can be passive doing it. I mean, I just instantly fell in love with twenty two hundred revenue, sixteen hundred rents, and yeah, you got to pay some repairs and expenses and capex, but you got passive cash flow coming in. To uh, you just have to keep buying assets. Cool. Well, I'm sure there there was a lot between you buying your first single family house and noticing a couple hundred dollars of, of free cash flow and then, you know, 3,000 units 10 years later. Can you tell us kind of like how you scaled what happened next after after you, the light bulb kind of went off? Yeah, I mean, up to 2015, which is like five, six years, 
it was just like like a turtle's base. Just how much money I could save. I was making a pretty good salary, and I was really, really frugal and cheap. And I was able to save maybe thirty to fifty thousand dollars a year. So all of that went into buying more properties. And what kind of um, properties were you buying? The the next one was like a B class. You know, I started to listen to podcasts and books and got to understand this concept of A, B, and C class properties. The first and, one, like I said, was A class. And w- which do you prefer? I mean, I think everybody would agree. Like the sweet spot is your B B minus B class property, maybe in a little bit better area, but you know, it's got a cash flow, right? And that was, you know, that was at a time where I learned about primary, secondary, and tertiary markets where Seattle is a primary market, just like Hawaii, San Francisco, LA, New York. It ain't going to work. No bueno. The, the rent to value ratios are, are off. Right, right. So that was when I kind of jumped to start picking up these turnkey rentals in Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis. And did a 1031 exchange for those two properties for nine out of state. So at this time, you were still buying single family houses? Yeah, yeah. And I still, you know, for most higher paid professionals, guys making over 60, 70 grand a year, I recommend staying with single family homes because in hindsight, I should have moved to syndications a lot quicker. And when you make that move, you want to sell these assets. So, you know, I went in with the mistake I went in, I thought I was going to hold on to these assets for 5, 10, 20 years, but no sophisticated investor will do that. You know, after 5, 10 years, your return on equity goes down due to the equity in each property going up, which is a good thing. But as an investor, it's all a return on equity, keeping that high. So you're going to want to sell these assets, either do a 1031 exchange, a cash out refi, or sell the asset into, into more. So at what point did you make the transition from the single family houses? Did you, did you personally start with, with putting your own money in buying apartment complexes? Or was it your own money investing in single family houses straight to syndicating apartment deals? What did that transition look like? I actually sold my primary residence to get a couple hundred thousand dollars of seed money to go in on a few deals as a passive. As a, I was, so I didn't really need, yeah, I, I kept the, at the time I had 11 single family homes. They're all cash flowing. And at that time I was like, this stuff works. And I took, I took all my money out of my 401k because, you know, once you get proof of concept and you can see like, you know, the financial dogma that is Wall Street, you know, you take all the money out of your retirement accounts. Why would you want to put your money in retirement accounts? I want to pay my taxes today when my income is less and who knows what the taxes are going to be in the future. And why would I want to be constricted to garbage investments that's in, you know, paper assets? So... I did that and I also sold my primary residence, the, the place I live, because you know, like the another financial dogma out there is owning the house you live in. Why would I want to own a house in Seattle when I could own ten or twenty houses out of state? That just makes no sense. So you 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 to date do not own a primary residence? No, why would I? I'm, today I live in Hawaii. <laughs> I mean, like the rent to value ratios are even worse out there. Yeah. 
I mean, I think that's where a lot of newer or younger people, not in the real estate space, but just general people in general. I mean, that's how younger couples get absolutely financially screwed from the get go. I mean, here in Hawaii, they'll buy a $600,000 starter house. I know that's sticker shock to most people, but yeah, you know, to buy that, you're going to need 20% down payment. That's like a hundred something grand. I mean, with that, I could buy five houses in the Midwest, cash flowing at a couple hundred bucks each. You know, there's the cash flow alone will do a lot better, not including tax benefits, appreciation, mortgage pay down, et cetera. So you said that you, you sold those single family houses to invest passively in someone else's syndication? Yeah, well, I sold the primary residence to, because I didn't want to, even though I was doing that for like five or six years, I didn't want to let go of my cash flow like assets first. So I got rid of the primary residence, got a couple hundred thousand from there to try something new, like these syndications and private placements. And how did that work out? It was a little bit of a mixed bag, you know, but for the most part, I mean, proof that I should sell all these other properties. So last year I sold like seven of them. This year I sold two of them. So I got like two more left to sell, but it's been a slow transition. But so do you always to date still invest passively in other people's syndications or are you an operator yourself? I'm kind of both. I, I'm an operator in some of my deals, but if I want geographic diversification and I want to diversify in different partners and different asset classes too, especially there's four reasons why you invest in syndications. One, different partners. You never know who you can trust. You never know who's going to fall in tough times. Number two, geographic locations. I try and find the best teams in, you know, the, like a Mississippi market or a Texas market, right? Not everybody's going to have the stranglehold because it's, it's all based on broker relationships out there. Third is, you know, I, everybody's doing multifamily these days. I'm kind of moving away a little bit from multifamily and doing some mobile home parks. Mobile home parks. Right. You know, some, you gotta always zig when everybody's zagging or I don't know if that's the term, (laughs) but um, yeah, I mean the, and then, you know, different business plans too, right? Some are a little bit more value add, some are more value cash flow based. So, you know, it's all the map. And I think my goal is to build, I call it a syndication ladder where you know, maybe you just go into a deal once a quarter or, or once every six months and you kind of build one on top of the other. And at some point these, these deals will hatch and cash out refi or sell. And then you won't have this, you know, it's kind of a good problem to have, but it's a problem, but a lot of money to redeploy, right? Got it. So what are the, what are the typical life cycles of the business plans that that you're implementing i mean you can you can invest in whatever syndication you want right it can be a a lemonade stand it can be a tech startup i focus on more cash flow type of deals where i can verify based on the t12 p l's if the business is making money Right. So it's not like, well, once we build this thing 18 months later, this is what it should sell for or run for. No, I don't, I don't do that. Got I it. don't, you know, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> why would I want it? Yeah. You could probably make more money, but I'm in a lucky position where I don't need to take risks. I can just, it's more about capital preservation and just making a 
a good cash flow. And of course, there's a value add on the back end. But, you know, we don't know where this economy is going to go, right? Like at any moment, the recession could happen. And you, you want to be in deals that are cash flowing, that are right out of recession. So what do you think would be a good recession proof investment? Well, I mean, I like workforce housing, right? I mean, I think that's if you've been listening to podcasts for a month, you've, you've kind of gotten on the bandwagon of not going after the luxury type of housing, right? The A class will move to the Bs, the Bs will move to the Cs, et cetera. But you never know, right? I mean, I majority of my stuff is in multifamily apartments, but that's because I know it the best. But you never know if America is going to turn into like a China and start building C-class apartments to house the, the glut of people of you know, the workforce housing demands. We don't know. That's why it's, it's nice to be in different asset classes and be diversified. You know, oil and gas, self-storage. Do you, yeah. do, you, do you go into a lot of self-storage? I am not, personally not in self-storage right now. I don't really like it too much because... Why, why is that? It, a lot of these deals, it's, you know, when you, when you put into the spreadsheet, what makes or breaks a deal is the price per square foot, the comps, mm-hmm. right? And that's why you got to watch out for when people are assuming that the rents are going to go up more than 15 or 20%. That ain't going to happen. You know, if it is, you better be including 20% vacancy in the first few months for sure. So like, you know, whether it's 98 cents a square foot or a hundred or a dollar, four cents a square foot, that's a huge thing that most people overlook. So it's self-storage. Like you can have, you can run your numbers and use a certain square footage comp. But if somebody builds something a couple blocks away, you're screwed. You, You just bombed your comps. And it's very easy to build that type of stuff. Now, if somebody builds a, apartment nearby i mean it doesn't really impact you too much because it's a class a right and this is why i like mobile home parks because they don't build that like they're, they're, they're just very not restrictive build. there's high barriers of entry to create yeah mobile there's home parks there's a lot of issues? political yeah yeah no i mean it's it's a dirty it's looked at like a dirty asset politically and but more importantly it doesn't make the municipality any money which is why they don't permit that Got it. So, I don't know. As a passive investor, I kind of look at learning one thing at a time. And now I'm, I'm kind of focusing on mobile home parks. And, you know, I might be wrong. That, that could just be a high-level look at self-storage. Of course, there's always outliers and, you know, best-of-class operators. But at this point, I'm kind of focusing on mobile home parks right now where where are you focusing on mobile home parks what parts of the country and i mean are just you, are you in prime you're out of primary markets so you out of primary markets yeah i mean mostly secondary and and well actually not secondary these days but more tertiary markets just because we're, where we are in the market cycle you know secondary markets are they got pretty much a bit up yeah since like 2013 15 16 um, so, you've got to look where people aren't looking. So going back a little bit to when, when you were still a full-time engineer, can you talk a little bit about how you balanced 
having a full-time W-2 job and being a real estate investor at the same time? What kind of challenges you faced and kind of how you overcame those? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll caveat in saying that, like, I was not a very good engineer and I didn't do much work at work. And you can say that now that you don't work for them anymore. And I don't plan on going back, man. <laughs> <laughs> I love posting just personal stuff on LinkedIn. And people are like, what are you doing, man? Putting up, like, like random stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't care, right? This is my life. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, I mean, you know, it takes it takes a lot of focusing on the right things, right? Like when I was five, six years ago, I remember I was like, especially on the weekend, I was like screwing around on my spreadsheets on my computer all day long. And I look back and I was like, that what I was doing back then was a complete waste of time, which is really dumb because when you have a day job, you have to be very efficient with your time. Like you have to make calls, you have to manage your property managers. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's just like time management, you know? Yeah. So can you tell us a story about like your highlights and your lowlights? So maybe your, your best deal that it was like a home run you knocked out of the park. And then if you have like maybe something that didn't go so hot, any examples of, of something that maybe went, went terribly wrong you can share with our, our listeners? Yeah. I mean, I don't really have too many highlights because I don't really take that much risk. Okay. I mean, like, I step into deals at cash flow day one. Got it. So, so you're, you're more interested in, like, turnkey type properties. Right, right. Or deals that are cash flowing today. I mean, there, there are a few deals that we're in right now that we're in a little bit rougher areas that we've turned around. But, you know, like, some of the, 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 low, the low points, I would say... I lost like 40 grand in one of my first LP deals I went into. I got it like off a referral from some self-directed IRA company. Mm -hmm. And now looking back on it, number one, I didn't, I didn't like, what the heck was I getting a referral from a self-directed IRA company? (laughs) You know, (laughs) like, and number two, I didn't have a relationship with that guy. So the lesson learned is only work with people, you know, like, or trust. How do you do that? You got to build relationship with other passive investors that don't have you know, a dog in the fight. Got it. Talking to syndicators, talking to other operators does you no good. You have to build real relationships with people. I mean, your, your network is your net worth becomes so much more important once your net worth becomes half a million dollars and above. Right. So, so I lost, yeah, I lost 40 grand with that. The guy, I guess... I sure I found out shortly after the guy was like a shyster and then he essentially like you could see how he was doing it like he just he probably was just siphoning off cash and then at some point a couple years down the road he didn't pay that the taxes and then the letter came through it's like yeah we went bankrupt you know sorry oh, wow. I didn't I didn't really do anything legally I don't know that's just the way I am I mean that's it is that the me. only time that's happened to you I mean, I've worked with other partners that, you know, didn't perform, but I don't work with them again. Yeah. You know? And it's going to happen, right? This is, this is syndication. This is private placements. You're, you're walking a little bit off the beaten path, but that's because of the, the rewards are so much greater. So you have to ask yourself, are you comfortable taking a little bit of risk, 
but mitigating this risk by only doing things that other people that you trust have done, or are you just going to stay in the stock market and work for the next 40 years at your day job? So what are the average returns you're getting in these syndications that you're investing in passive? Most of these things, you know, you've got like a 2x multiplier, double your money in like a five to six year mm-hmm. kind of play. These are the ones with the cash flow component. And the cash flow is like, let's say, you know, high single digits, 8%-ish, 10% paid quarterly. And then on the back end, you get this big chunk of money. So if you add up the cash flow and the sale, you know, that's how you get your 2x multiplier. But you know, they're, they're all kind of range a little bit, right? But on average, that's what I would punch into my uh, spreadsheet and kind of like to make projections. You know, I would use like a 14% IRR just to be conservative. Gotcha. So you talk a lot about diversification. So I'm guessing you're not putting large chunks of money in one single deal, but you're spreading out. What's the average investment you would say you put into to each different syndication yeah usually like 50 grand is like the the lowest common denominator for minimum investments out there there are deals you can get in for 25 but they're usually with more inexperienced operators who are kind of looking for to fill their deal 100 is getting a little rich those are usually from the more institutional operators that i personally don't work with yeah i mean the the rule of thumb is you know don't gamble with more than five percent of your net worth so why do you not get in with the, the more institutional? Higher acquisition fees and lower investor splits. Got it. it and it, this is all comes down to your investor philosophy. Like I have investors that their net worth is two, $4 million and above, and that's exactly what they want. They want to drive a Mercedes. They want to go drive, you know, I don't know what kind of equivalent car that is, but they want that. But whereas where I am in personally, I mean, I, I don't work with newbies. I kind of work with guys who are kind of in the middle and in the middle. It, it's hard walking that razor's edge. Right. But it's not for everybody. Yeah. How would you say that your investment is spread out today among these 3000 units? How much is in apartments? How much is in mobile home parks? And then is there any other asset classes that you're, that you're investing in? Yeah, I would say 80% of my stuff is like residential, people living there for 500 or I'll say like, yeah, I would say 70% is apartments, single family, maybe 10 to 20% is mobile home park. And then the last 10% is like, you know, I'm, I'm saying like, I'm breaking my rule here, but they're more like the development type, the riskier stuff, oil and gas. Oil and gas. Exploration-ish type investment. Because I get bored, I'll be honest, right? Like I get in here and I can't, I, you know, my podcast is simple passive cash flow. But after all, it gets boring, right? <laughs> so if you're, if you're investing mostly in, in other people's deals and, and you're doubling your money every five years or so, and you've only been doing this for, for 10 years, so you, you you couldn't have doubled so much. So if you talk to a lot of, of, of investors, they'll kind of, they'll do the, the, the risk creation piece, I mean the wealth creation piece 
on like some development or they'll like be the operator and, and add this huge amount of value. If you're simply investing passively in other syndications, how was the majority of your wealth created? Is this just all from saving when you were working as an engineer and then maybe those, those single family houses you owned appreciated a good bit or? Okay. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean, I definitely am a beneficiary of uh, appreciation on those single family homes. Uh, so as much as I knock turnkey rentals and single family homes as not being scalable and kind of a pain, they do appreciate and, you know, I'm not going to, not going to lie. I got lucky, right. With yeah. a good amount of appreciation, but I think you just mentioned it, right? Like I saved my butt off. I saved like 30 to 50 grand a year from my day job. And I'm not saying it's going to work for everybody, but if you're a working professional with a hundred K a year job and above. Yeah. I, I think we don't talk about it a lot because it's not as, as sexy as maybe other topics, but frugality it sounds like is what really got you to a lot of your success is just saving money not driving flashy cars and, and trying to show off what you had, but actually, you know, sacrificing over an extended period of time, living below your means, saving money and, and, and using it to invest rather than buying depreciable assets. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm in the fat fire camp. I mean, that's my license plate on my, my Mercedes <laughs> right now, but, but yeah. Was, I mean, it, was it 10 years ago? No, just this year. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, but yeah, the first 10 years is eating ramen noodles and, you know, I still don't buy soft drinks when I go to the restaurant, right? We never did that growing up. Yeah. You buy soft drinks. You can go home <laughs> and drink. <you> know. <laughs> yeah, so, but, but yeah, I mean, if, if, you're, if you have a good top line revenue from your day job, then you can do that. I mean, you, you can pick a point. You, you can... That's just my, how my personality is. Like I, I'll mentor a lot of people and, you know, some of these younger guys, like, I don't know, people consider me a millennial because I look 18, but I don't feel like I am. <laughs> but some of these millennials are like, oh, I want to go to Fiji and kind of forgo my lawyer job so I can live a, a life that I truly enjoy. But the way I did, I was like, no, I'm going to bust my butt and work in the field for like five years and not see home so I can retire in 10 years. Right. I, I think I'm more of extreme, right? You, you got to figure out what's your <laughs> level you. of uh, commitment. <laughs> well, I, I'm extreme. I just have a hard time convincing my wife to <laughs> live that uh, extreme lifestyle with me sometimes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I call that, I just wrote an article on that like reluctant spouse syndrome, RSS. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that's your, your battle there, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, luckily, I had like a thousand units before I got married. So I had proof of concept, right? Right. So, Easy sell. <laughs> this, this train's moving. You got to get on it or not. But yeah, I mean, not everybody. I was an accidental landlord, right? And I can't really empathize with people, you know, in their mid-40s getting that first out-of-state rental. I mean, I could help them out as much as I can, but I can't push them because I, I didn't really push myself. Right. So what advice do you have for new real estate investors or like people that, that are thinking about getting started or maybe reluctant or maybe, maybe somebody who started and like got those first few single family homes to like 
take it to the next level? What, what, what advice do you have for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I was in the doldrums for six years just doing that. When I started to pay money to go into masterminds and get around other doctors, lawyers, engineers that were 10, 15 years ahead of me, that was when like things caught on fire for me. Just surrounding um, it, yourself with the right people? With the right people. And these right people are not on the free forms. They're not at the local RIA. That's right. for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely agree with that. But And that was, that was one of the, the reasons that I, I started this podcast was it gave me an excuse to continue networking and continue my education. You know, every week I'm sitting here talking with investors like you, and, and that, that's my version of continuing my education, continuing my networking. Right, right. And I mean, I call it the podcast wheel. Like, if you're listening to a podcast for more than 12 to 18 months, I mean, you probably have learned everything you need to, to learn. Yeah. I mean, you got to go out and do it. And I mean, go pick up the phone. I mean, give me a call. Right. You need to talk to real people and build relationships with real people. That was why I lost 40 grand in my first LP deal because I didn't have the network to tell me otherwise. Don't work with that shady guy. Everybody knows he's shady. Yeah. That was your first deal. Yeah. First LP deal. So, so what did you do differently on your second one to make sure that didn't happen again? I only work with people that I know someone personally has been in their previous deal or know someone who has been in their previous deal. So I call it sort of investing via proxy. Got it. But unless I can cross-reference, I mean, people bring me deals all the time. I'm like, who the heck is this guy? How do you know? Right. That's always my first question. People will know, oh, here's the splits, here's the breaths. And I'm like, no, the first question is always, who is this person? How do you know them? Yeah. Always first. So what's next for you now that you've, now that you've transitioned away from, from the, the W2 life, what's going to be next? So I have a mastermind right now where I have passive investors. So it's just, luckily I get to move from a life of obligation, right? Cause you get to go to, you go to work, you got to go to work. You got to go to stupid meetings all the time. You have to right. do this. When you turn FI, you move from a life of obligation to choice. So I get to kind of choose what I want to do and choose who you want to work with and hang out with. So I've kind of trying to build like a smaller community where people I actually like <laughs> instead of some of these trolls that write stuff on my YouTube comment page or you know, like... <laughs> So that's, that's kind of what I'm working on these days. And of course, more deals, right? At this point, it's become pretty passive. I mean, it, deals kind of just fall into the inbox. And, and you're looking to invest in more mobile home parks and, and less apartments? Yeah. Yeah. But whatever deals come up, right? I think these days there's a lot more syndicated deals. But if you can run the deals through your analyzer, you can cut to the noise. I don't know. I mean, in terms of what's the future, maybe like life settlements, that's very uncorrelated with the economy. Life settlements. Right. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? So you, okay. So this sounds really morbid and hopefully people don't, don't start evaluating me as a person, <laughs> but so you can buy the, 
policy of somebody who has their insurance policy that's going to you're betting pass on away. death yeah kind of but you're gonna give <laughs> them like this big chunk of money so that they can live out their life but here's here's like where like this is actually helping them and like this is coming from a guy who like i don't like wholesalers at all like I've, i think I, they're, they're, i've heard you talk about it on your they're podcast. like i think they're kind of like some of the sleaziest guys out there <laughs> they like yeah. buy properties for 30 cents of the dollar where you could just list it on with a broker yeah. But you can't do that with this life settlement stuff. It's only the big company. So you're kind of coming as a smaller guy, helping them out, giving them a chunk of money so they can take their family to Disneyland and live out their, their last remaining lives. But the truth is like, you have to pay like premiums to these policies, right? And a lot of times it's really predatory. It's like it increases on them uh-huh. at a certain point or frankly, they just run out of money. Like 70% of these guys run out of money and they can't pay the premiums Therefore, they, don't, they never, ever get to see that big payout at the end when they die. They're screwed. So you're kind of coming in at a point to just give them what, what it's kind of worth at that point so that the life insurance company doesn't win. Right. This, the life ins- it's, it's messed up, man. Sounds like, like a, sounds like a young man's game. <laughs> it's actually an accredited investor game. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, Warren Buffett, this is what he invests in. Really? That's why he has an insurance company, so he can do this kind of stuff. Not oh, for nice. Geico or AAG or whatever. It's for <laughs> this. This is where it's at. Got it. So next we have our, our radio round. Just three quick questions to kind of help our, our listeners get to know you a little better. First one is, what's your favorite book? I'm not a big book guy. I think people should just go out and meet people and analyze deals. But if Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller – yeah, if you haven't read that. any books, read that one. But after that, stop reading books, please. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love I love that book. I think you're the, the second or third guest that's actually mentioned the Gary Keller book. The next question is, what's your favorite quote? Things don't happen to you, they happen for you. Who is that? I don't know. Probably Jim Rome or that sounds like Robbins. Jim or, but yeah, I mean, when I was like buying rentals in Seattle... And like, I was like, why am I not couch flowing anymore? You know? <laughs> yeah. And like, then I wouldn't have gone to like Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis. I wouldn't have gone in on my comfort zone to do that. And then when I got up to 11 rentals, why is this so, so much a pain in the butt that 30 would be impractical to have? I wouldn't have gone into other stuff. So I'm assuming when you bought in these out-of-state rentals, you were hiring local property management? Yeah, of course. Be an investor, not a landlord. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going through it at the moment. <laughs> I feel you on that. So the next question is, what's your favorite thing to do when you're not working? I don't know, man. I don't surf. I like to... You live in Hawaii like, and don't surf? Yeah, I do CrossFit and stuff. I don't know. I need to get some hobbies. I, I work on my website and my podcast all the time and I'm still working like someone's yeah. chasing me. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah, the website, simplepassivecashflow.com, found on iTunes, Google Play. Yeah, if you guys email shout lane at simplepassivecashflow is my email address. That's how awesome. you can find me. Well, thank you so much for joining the show today, Lane. I know our, our, our listeners are going to love it and look forward to hearing from you again soon. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.